Good evening and thanks for coming to this Cambridge Science Festival lecture in association with Cambridge University Press. Uh, my name is Vince Higgs, I'm editor for Astronomy and Planetary Science books at CUP. Um, so I've been asked to introduce today's lecturer, Monica Grady, who's Professor of Planetary and Space Science at the Open University. Um, she's a world-renowned meteorite expert and to many of you she'll be a familiar face and voice from her appearances on television, radio, and dare I say, YouTube. Um, I've had the pleasure of working with Monica when she was the lead author of The Atlas of Meteorites, which is a visual reference on meteorite classification. Um, her many years of hard work clearly paid off as the book won the American Publishers Association's top prize in physical sciences and maths during its year of publication, and it's now used by researchers all over the world. So this evening's lecture, Space on Earth, is all about meteorites, and I don't want to give anything away. So let me simply thank Monica for giving her, her time to be here with us tonight. And I hope you enjoy the lecture. Thank you very much, Vince. And thank you very much for the invitation to come here and uh, talk to you. I don't recognize Vince, actually. Um, I used to sort of see an email that would come from him and my heart would sink. And the only times I ever saw him would be at conferences and I'd try and avoid him. Uh, you know, I don't recognize him without the cattle prod of trying to get me to produce the catalogue of meteorites. It was a long, long time and Vince is very, very patient. I'm very grateful that we actually got there in the end. So tonight I'm going to talk about space on Earth, and if you've come here to hear about um, astronauts, uh, I'm afraid you're going to be very disappointed, because what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about my, my favourite subject, which uh, is meteorites, and these are often tatty-looking bits of rock that you can't tell immediately uh, from a, a rock that you'd find in your garden. And actually, one of the banes of curators' lives is the people who come in and say, I've got this meteorite, I found it. Oh, has anybody got one here tonight that they want me to look at <laughs> before I start being too rude? But the, the thing is that meteorites fall all the time on the Earth's surface, absolutely all the time, all over the place. And, you know, the chances of you finding a meteorite are, you know not very high because most of them fall in the sea because you know a huge amount of the sea is uh, of the world is sea and 50% of them fall at night you know where, where people are asleep and if one fell in the middle of cambridge in the middle of parker's peace or, or or in the you know back garden of uh, the fitzwilliam and nobody was there to see it it's gone, it's lost, that's a problem. Sometimes they come with really fantastic fireballs, you know, really great explosions of, of light and sound. And when that happens, um, often people think, oh, wow, I, I, I can follow it down, I can see it, I can see it, I can see it. Oh, it's landed there, I'll go there. And maybe the meteorite had landed there. But they'll pick up the really shiny bit of terrestrial slag and miss the really dull-looking grey rock next to it because there's an assumption that meteorites are, are shiny and they look, look exciting. And some of, them, some of them are. Well, they're all exciting. But some of them are very shiny, but um, a, a lot of the time they, they look a bit like slag, uh, but not shiny slag. So why, what makes them so special? Why, why do people care about them? Why do we study them? Well, we can learn a lot about the origin and evolution of the solar system, and not just the solar system, but now, of course, with telescopes finding more and more planets around other stars, we can start using what we know about the solar system to try and explain about exoplanets and exomoons. They can tell us about how stars evolve, which is interesting. And some of them tell us about the moon, and some of them tell us about Mars. We might even be able to get information about the origin of life from some of them. You know, maybe it's stretching it a bit, but, you know, hope on. And so we've got all these different things that meteorites tell us. Now, the way I study meteorites, and this is laboratory-based space exploration, so this is why it's space on Earth. They've, they've come from up there to down here, and we use all sorts of stuff to study them. So while astronomers have to go out in the cold and the dark and, and sit in drafty observatories, you know, with an eye to the telescope or, or whatever the, the, the modern equivalent is, 
I get to sit, and it says this at the bottom, you know, the side benefits are that the labs are indoors at ground level, so you don't get altitude sickness, which if you do uh, on a teles using a telescope, because they're all at the top of mountains, and you don't have to worry about cloud cover, I mean, which astronomers do, you know, it's like it's that you can't use a telescope if, it, if the cloud is completely, uh, sky is completely cloudy. So we are using meteorites to actually do astronomy, which is really great. And, you know, we think about it as doing astronomy by microscope rather than telescope, which is a sort of, right, oh, right, okay. Now, I'm not an astronomer. I did chemistry and I did ge geology um, at, at university. So my astronomer colleagues, um, when they hear me saying, I'm doing astronomy by microscope, they think it's an absolute travesty. You know, when I, I can say, well, I can tell you about how stars evolve from my meteorites, they think it's absolutely, well, how, how can you do that? Well, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you uh, some, of these, some of these secrets that you can winkle out of meteorites if you've, if you've got the right sort of um, apparatus. And what we do is uh, we use microscopy. And the first thing we do is we take a low-resolution scan at visible wavelengths of light. Okay. I look at it. <laughs> All right. Sounds much better, doesn't it, as a low-resolution scan at visible wavelengths. But yes, the first thing you do is you, you look at it. And it, it, you can learn a huge amount just simply when you pick it up and, and, and look at it. Has it got a fusion crust on the outside? So this is the part of the meteorite which gets incandescently hot as it comes down through the atmosphere. So it's traveling really fast. Uh, it's getting really hot. The outside is getting really hot. Now, me, uh, from frictional heating. Now, they don't, meteorites, they don't conduct the heat. They radiate the heat outwards. It's not conducting inwards. So the inside of the meteorite actually doesn't get hot. And the, the, the melted bit, as it comes through the atmosphere, gets peeled off. And this is where you get these amazing fireballs. It gets peeled off. And the, the, the last layer, where it's still several kilometers above the, the, the surface, it's not traveling fast enough because the friction has, has slowed it down as well as, um, as, well, as well as heating it up. So, so by the time it's um, not traveling fast enough to melt the outside, the, the, the final layer sort of freezes, quenches, and you get this fusion crust on the outside. And when you break a meteorite open, you can see the fusion, you can see the fusion crust on the outside. You can see that the inside hasn't been changed. I mean, it'd be useless if these things all completely melted as they came through the atmosphere. We wouldn't be able to get any information from them at all. So you see the fusion crust. And is it black and shiny as if it's been painted with enamel paint? Or is it duller, sort of grayer, matte colour, and that tells you, you know, different types, you know, for, for the specialist amongst us, you can tell straight away. Does it feel really, really heavy? Is it metallic? Is it magnetic? You know, all these sorts of things that you can tell straight away by, by just looking at it. But then, of course, we have to go deeper, we have to use, uh, it, uh, well, proper microscopes, not just, uh, just our eyes, but then electron microscopes help us look even deeper, and X-ray diffraction gives us a structure. So we look at all these things to, to tell us about. And we use spectroscopy. And what spectroscopy does is this gives you compositional data. Um, and <clears throat> spectroscopy doesn't, it just has to, you know, you have to have your, your sample there. And for uh, visible spectroscopy, the light comes down, it bounces off the sample, and you have a detector. Um, uh, to, to look at the, the reflected, the bounced off light rays, okay? So you can do that in the lab. But this is one of the techniques that astronomers use. So for space missions where you've got a, a spacecraft orbiting a planet or a comet or an asteroid or, or a telescope um, orbiting the Earth but looking out to looking at uh, nebulae and stars and things like that, they're looking at the reflected light coming from those objects and, and using a spectrometer to interpret that light, okay? So if you think back to your school days when you put a piece, you know, some ink on blotting paper and um, it's smeared out, you've got that spectrum, that colour spectrum, or think of a rainbow where you've got light coming through a raindrop and it, it's refracted into the different colours of the rainbow. You're looking at those different colours and that's spectroscopy that, that you're seeing there. 
So we can then match what we find in the lab with what astronomers have found by doing their remote sensing. And the really great thing is that we can do it more accurately and we can reproduce it. Um, and and I, I really don't like this phrase that I've got on that top sentence, ground truth. But yeah, we, we can tell astronomers and modelers, theoreticians, no, you've got it wrong, because we've got it here in our hands. We've got it in the laboratory. You know, we've got it, all right? And um, it's great. And we don't want to keep it. We've got to share it with you. That's the thing. So what are these things that we do, and why, why do we do them, and why can meteorites tell us about all this? Well, if you go back to things that astronomers do to, to understand how stars form... Um, stars have a life cycle in the, the way that people do and plants do and, and everything does. They have a life cycle. So a star starts off, and it's going to start off, if I can see, see that little arrow. Can you see the little arrow? Yeah. So we have a place of star formation, all right? Um, and a place of star formation that's happening now is in the Orion Nebula. So if you think about, how many of you know what Orion looks like in the night sky? Let's have a quick show of hands. Oh, jolly good. Excellent. So you know Orion, he's got three stars in his belt, and then hanging down from his belt is his sword or his dagger. Now, two-thirds of the way along there, and you can see this with the naked eye if it's really dark, okay? It's probably not so good from the centre of Cambridge, but if it's really, really dark, you can see about two-thirds of the way along the belt uh, a, a sort of fuzzy bit. And you might think, oh, I've got, you know, my eyes are going a bit, but look at it out the side of your eye. Okay? It's one of those things. And you can just see this fuzzy thing. And you can convince yourself it's bluey-green, you know, if, you, you know if, you've, if you're very faithful. Um, that is where the Orion Nebula is. And it's massive. It's enormous, great big cloud of gas and dust. And it's really turbulent and it's really active. And, and inside this cloud, there are thousands of millions of stars forming. I mean, okay, you know, you can see this fuzzy bit in the night sky. Get online and look at some of the pictures that the Hubble Space Telescope and, and some of the other telescopes have taken of, of Orion because, the, because they are beautiful, really lovely. And you can see, you know, shining through them these little pinpoints of light. Now, what happens is this dust and gas, especially the gas, it's very turbulent, and it, it starts to clump together. Something might send it off. Something might get it going to start it collapsing in on itself. We don't quite know what that is. It might be another star exploding as a supernova and a shockwave going, going through going through the cloud, but it starts to collapse in on itself. And then eventually gravity sort of pulls it in. And eventually when you get to a certain size, you've got a, a pressure and a size of that gas and it switches on, and it starts to fuse. It starts to burn. The gas is hydrogen. It starts to burn hydrogen into helium. And that's when the star is born. And you've got, usually, it's not quite up to full power, all right? It's the dim young sun, all right, which is what I call Jack, my boy. The dim young sun, or the faint young sun. And gradually, it, it increases as it, as it gets bigger. And our sun has been shining for 4,567 million years, all right? And I'll tell you how we know. Astronomers, you know, those careless people would say, oh, the sun's about 5 billion years old. Oh, it's got about another 5 billion years to go. But we can be a whole lot more precise than that. So once the star has formed... It goes through the life cycle. Our, our star will burn hydrogen into helium, then it'll burn the helium into, into uh, carbon, and then carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, all these things. And it will go through this cycle until it gets to a stage where it can't burn anything anymore. And it'll have got to a stage... Uh, well, actually, our sun is only going to go to the red giant stage when it, it's going to fuse hydrogen into helium. But bigger stars go all the way through burning until they make iron. And when you get to iron, if you have iron, one iron nucleus and another iron nucleus, and you try to fuse them, push them together to make them into something else, they can't do it because the, the atoms are so big and they've got so much sort of potential in them that they, they push themselves apart. So they bring them together and push themselves apart. So 
by, by this nuclear fission, you can't build anything bigger than, than iron. So you have to have something like a supernova to, to um, uh, get heavier elements all the, way up to, um, to, all the way up to uranium and things like that. And, you know, supernovae, um, astronomers, they've got, have I got any astronomers in the audience? Well, I keep on dissing them like crazy. <laughs> Astronomers have got so many get-out clauses, so many things. You know, if it's not explained by a supernova, then it's a black hole, all right? It's like you can blame so many things on either a black hole or a supernova. It's brilliant. Everybody else has to justify themselves. Astronomers just say, have to say, well, we need to know more about black holes. And I'm not saying the money comes, but, which isn't true. But anyway, so star formation. So you get stars, and they form, and they evolve. They, they do all these things. All the time, a star is going through its lifetime, it's giving off a wind, the solar wind in our case. And that wind in our case is hydrogen because that's what the sun is made from. And though that gas and those dust particles that are coming from the sun go out through the solar system and they go beyond the solar system. They go into the interstellar medium, okay? And then they go, they, they go back and they mix, get mixed in with, with other molecular clouds, all right? So I've got a molecular cloud where we started, whoops, where's my arrow gone? Molecular cloud, collapse to get star formation and evolution. And for some of the stars, so you've got, you've got the stars putting material out into the interstellar medium. Some of the big stars, all right, when they get to this stage when they're trying to burn iron and they can't, they explode as a supernova and all the material that they've built up during their lifetime goes back out into the interstellar medium. And of course, the interstellar medium, which is the bit between the stars, is full of molecular clouds. So it starts again. So the very first stars that were produced after the Big Bang, oh, that's the other thing that astronomers can call on, you know, Big Bang, black hole, supernovae, all right? After the Big Bang, which is 13.7 or so billion years ago, that's when, that's when hydrogen and a few other bits and pieces were made. So the earliest stars, there was only hydrogen there. So the oldest stars have just got hydrogen in them. Now, our sun, if you look at a spectrum of our sun, it's got it's got hydrogen, obviously, and helium, but it's also got iron and silicon and calcium and uranium, and, and it's got every element in the periodic table in it. Now, we know it's not making them at the moment, so they've come from something else. So our star is second-hand, all right? It's made up of dust from other stars that have, that, that have um, exploded and, and gone before, all right? So our star is probably a second or even a third generation star. So as the star forms then, it does other things. We've got our molecular cloud, and so that up in the top uh, left-hand corner, that's a HST image of part of the Orion Nebula. And you think of this, this star that's forming, and the, dust, the gas has all gone into the central bit, and the dust is all is spinning round, and it forms a, a sort of disk around the star. Here, you can see you've got this this faint sun in the middle, all right, faint sun, faint star in the middle, and a protoplanetary disk around it. Now, for years and years and years, nobody had seen these protoplanetary disks in star-forming regions. But now, Hubble Space Telescope, first of all, I mean that's a that's a um, a bit from the Hubble Space Telescope. That really revolutionized what we understood about planet formation because we could see lots of stars have these disks, new stars have these disks around them. And people can now actually see gaps in the disk. If you think about a plate, all right, so there, it's like a plate with a star in the middle, and then there are holes around, sort of gaps, where, where dust has clumped together and something has swept out that particular orbit, that particular path in that disk. And that shows that there's a planet there. So what astronomers can see is if they're, if they're looking at a disk edge on, that's not much good. But if you've got the right geometry and you're looking at a disk face on, and you can see that there are actually tracks where there is no dust, that's a good indication that there's a planet there. So we're really getting to grips with understanding how these things have formed. And so within our protoplanetary disk, all right, eight planets formed. And then between Mars and Jupiter, lots of asteroids formed. Now, I say between Mars and Jupiter, but 
we know where Jupiter is now, and we know where Saturn is, all right? It's out, they're out there. But when the solar system first formed, they were in here. They were much, much closer to the sun, much closer to the sun. And the dynamics of the, the solar system as it was forming was such that, uh, well, first of all, Saturn was closer to the sun than Jupiter, um, but they changed places and they moved outwards. And as they moved outwards to where they are now, a lot of the chunks of, of uh, rock that were trying to get themselves into a planet couldn't do it because Jupiter upset them, perturbed them. And so they got scattered into this huge belt called the asteroid belt, which is between Mars and Jupiter. And then a whole lot of other stuff, which is mainly dust and uh, which is mainly um, stone and ice, um, because it could condense uh, where it was far enough out for the, for the sun not to make the, the ice uh, liquid or sublime it into a gas. These things made comets which were also scattered outwards as well. So we've got a, a belt of, of rock and metal between Mars and Jupiter, and we've got a belt of rock and ice beyond Neptune. And that belt goes, goes on for hundreds of thousands of billions of, of kilometers um, to the, the outer fringes. It gets more and more, um, oh, sorry, it gets less and less populated, and then suddenly you've got the edge of the soda system, which we don't know very much about at all. But it's asteroids that I'm mainly concerned with at the moment, because these are the chunks which crash into each other and fall to Earth as bits of meteorite. Now then, what's my next slide? Ah, right. Unfortunately, I haven't got the right slide in. Right, we're just going to have to go with what I've got at the bottom there, all right? And this is where, um, these are three different types of meteorites. So you've got asteroids made of rock. Some are made of rock, some are made of metal, some are made of mixtures. And they're in these stable orbits around the sun, roughly circular orbits. And what they do is occasionally one of them gets moved a bit by you know, Jupiter's gravitational influence and it crashes into another, which crashes into another. And you can see over the period of solar system history, they've, they've been cratered over and over again. This is the asteroid 433 Eros. And you can see it's got an odd shape. It's got huge, great big craters in it. It's had bits bitten out of it. And so these chunks are ejected from the asteroid belt. A lot of them go straight into the sun. A lot of them leave the solar system, but some of them fall to the Earth as meteorites. Now, we've got three types of meteorites, okay? There's stony meteorites that are made of stone, and there's iron meteorites that are made of iron, and there's some that are 50-50 mix of stone and iron. Anybody like to guess what they're called? Yes, they're called stony irons, all right? So that's easy. Stone ones are made of stone, iron ones are made of iron, stony iron ones are made of stone and iron, all right? Now, that is the basic essence of meteorite classification. If you want to know more, there's a very good atlas of meteorites. <laughs> and it is a very arcane field, trust me. Right, so let's look at stony meteorites that really um, are the most interesting of meteorites um, for understanding about the origin of the solar system. This, if you look at it, this is a... Um, I'm having trouble with this arrow thing. Here we go. So this is a millimetre scale on the bottom. So we've got a sort of fist-sized chunk of a meteorite here. And you can see it's grey with white bits. And the outside is a slightly different grey colour. And then you've got this thing on the top, which looks for all the world like a bird dropping. But actually it isn't. All right, so this stuff on the top, that's the fusion crust that I was talking about earlier. So this is where it, it, it had got hot. But you can see it's thin. There isn't, there, there isn't a, you know, a, it's wafer thin, you know, less than a millimetre thick. So the heat, the effect of the, the, the travel through the atmosphere is not transferred inwards. And so this is a stone meteorite. And it's something we call chondrite, okay? Uh, now, there's lots of little roundy things in here, and I'll show you a bigger picture of them in a minute. And these little round things, they're, they're like, they look like little grapes or little seeds, and the Greek for that is chondros. Okay, so we call those little things chondrules, and this is chondrite. 
Um, stony rocks without them are called achondrites. That's why I can't call this a chondrite, because you might think I'm saying achondrite, but I'm not. Anyway, so there's the, the little round things, and here's a little, here's a little round thing, all right? And then there's things with irregular shapes, all right, which might be a couple, two or three millimetres, and sometimes the things with irregular shapes, which are enormous, all right? And they can tell us a lot about the early solar system. So that irregular shape up there, oh, that irregular shape up there at the top right, is a, it's got calcium in it and aluminium in it. And so we call it a calcium-aluminium rich inclusion, all right? Because it would be an inclusion, except it's on the outside. So all those little irregular white-shaped things, all right, they're rich in calcium and aluminium, and they're very irregular in shape. This is a, a, a picture that's taken down um, a, an optical microscope, and it's where we've taken the rock and we've cut it wafer thin and polished it so thinly that you can see right through it. And the different colours that you can see in this are because of the way the light is travelling through the, the rock. And you, so you can see this irregular shape. Now... Irregular shape means it hasn't been melted. So if you think about, if you think about, I don't know, if you solder something, all right, the solder forms little, forms little balls. If you think of raindrops, they form little, no, that's not a good because it's not melting, is it? But anyway, so things that melt, they form little balls because of, um, because of the surface tension after something has melted. That's why raindrops form as well. This hasn't ever been melted, or it hasn't had the effect of being a liquid so that the surface tension makes it into a ball. So this has come from some process. It's a solid. And what it is thought is that this went straight from a gas, and it solidified straight from a gas without going through a liquid phase. And you can only do that at very, very high temperatures. So this is something which formed at really, really high temperatures, the hottest temperature at which this protoplanetary disk was. Okay. And these things, these minerals that are made of calcium and aluminium, are um, they're the sorts of things that we have in electric heaters. You know, if you've got wire wound around um, an, an, an element or something, or an element formed by winding wire around something. That ceramic in the middle is made of a calcium and aluminium rich um, compound. So, and this is what ceramics are. And they, they, they you know, you, you make oven panels and things out of them because they can go to such high temperatures. Okay, so that's what they are. Now, the round things that I was talking about, and this is another picture of a, a, a round thing, again, in a, in a thin section. So I've got two, two bits there, one at slightly higher magnification than the other. Because they're round, they've been instantly melted. Now, the exciting thing about them is that these are tiny dust grains and these, these chondrules and chondrites, they've got the same composition as the sun, apart from the hydrogen. Now, you might think, hang on a minute, that sun's 99.9% .9 hydrogen. What, you know, how exciting is this? It's got the same composition of the sun, apart from the hydrogen. Yeah, but if you take the hydrogen away, and you, you've got all these, all these different elements, they're all there, and they're all there in these chondrites in the same relative proportions. So that means they're formed from the same material. The dust that was forming the sun has made these objects and they haven't gone through anything. If you go out and pick up a, a, a rock, all right, from, from your garden, um, it has been changed, all right, because the rocks from your garden, they might, be, they might be limestone, they might be clay, so they've gone through some terrestrial process. They might be, if you live on Hawaii, they might come from a volcano. If you live down in, in Exeter or um, down in the southwest, it might be granite. It might have come from, you know, deep down in, in the Earth's crust. And so the Earth has got none of this original material left. It's all gone. 
because the Earth has got this thing called plate tectonics, which changes the rocks. It's got this thing called an atmosphere and weather, which, which um, changes the rocks. And so you've got this great big cycle. And, you know, the, the ultimate thing that the cycle does is it changes rocks. It ruins them. But meteorites they've got this primitive, pristine signature. So when we're studying these tiny little droplets, we're looking at the dust grains from that disk which were colliding with each other. Like that, very fast. And when they collide, they, they melt, and then they quench instantly. And you get these beautiful colours and patterns and these minerals. And this one has got, it's got an overgrowth. You see here, it's got a, a bit extra on the side. And that looks like it was, just, just as it collided with another dust grain and it, it, and it, and it, it uh, formed, then you got, you know, maybe it was rotating and spinning and another one splatted on the side of it. All right, so you've got these, so these things are really great. And the big thing about them is that they're made of magnesium and iron with silicon and oxygen, all right? They're not calcium and aluminium. They've got bits of that in, but they're dominantly iron and magnesium. So they're a different shape and a different composition from the irregular things with calcium and aluminium in. So we've got two sets of stuff in this one meteorite. And we can tell just by looking at what radioactive elements they had in them, had, all right, they've all decayed, they're all dead, all right, and we can see, we can, we can get their ages, all right, and so we're getting a, a chronology, we're teasing these little things apart to get an age, and I will come back to that, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, uh, I'm looking at the clock up there, right? And, and so I'm not going to dwell on that, but we'll come back to it in a minute. So these are the rocks. Those ones were rocks that had never been melted. Now, some of the asteroids, some of the meteorites, have been melted. Now, what happens when you melt rock is what's happened to the Earth. So you get reactions going on. So you've started off with the, this dust, which has got the calcium, the aluminium, the magnesium, the iron, silicon, oxygen, all these things in. It's got incredibly hot. It's got, they've got hot because the planets are self-gravitating, you know, they're pulling themselves in. You've got a bit of gravitational energy. You've got energy from the radioactive isotopes that are in this dust, which are decaying away like crazy. Meteorites are not radioactive, I'll stress that again. But you've also got external heat because there's lots of this bombardment going on because at the, these early times in the solar system, it was really, really active. So you've got a lot of heat, and so a body can start to melt. So like the Earth, is melted inside. We've got a core. And what happens, it's like what happens um, when... Um, Iron oxide is smelted to make steel. So you take iron oxide and you add something to it. You add carbon or sulfur, a reducing agent, heat it all up, and the carbon or the sulfur takes the oxygen away from the iron oxide and leaves iron metal. And then carbon dioxide, sulfur dioxide goes into the atmosphere and, and pollutes us. All right? So you've got this, this metal-making process. That has gone on on planets as well. So... Before the Earth, there was a protoplanetary disk with this dust in, clumped together, got really, really hot, and this dust, which isn't iron oxide, but it's iron magnesium silicon oxide, or calcium aluminium um, oxide, got really hot. There's carbon there and sulfur, and so it starts to smelt. And what happens is the metal that's formed goes to make a core. So the Earth has a core, and it's iron, and all the elements in it that like to go and sit with iron. And the elements that like to go and sit with iron are mainly nickel, but also so platinum, palladium, iridium, gold, silver, copper. Okay? So the core... Is the Earth is really rich in all these elements, and the crust, which is the slaggy bit on top of the, the, the smelting furnace, that's the bit that we're standing on, the crust, 
is depleted in these elements. So that's another reason why when you pick up a rock from your garden, its composition is nowhere near like that of the sun because a lot of the iron has been taken away, a lot of the metallic iron. They've still got iron in them, but a lot of the metallic iron and the nickel and all these other bits and pieces, they're all in the core, okay? So this has happened on asteroids as well. So some of the asteroids are metal, and you've got these metal meteorites, which I think I'll come to in a minute. And you've got the stony complements on the top. And they are like what comes out of volcanoes. They're like basalt. So that on the, on the right-hand side there is a thin section again, this wafer with light. And if you, if you took a slice through um, your, your um, basalt, terrestrial uh, volcanic rock, it would look something like that. So these are some of the earliest sort of solar system basalts. And the rock on the left is actually from Vesta. It's a type of meteorite that comes from Vesta, which is um, the biggest of all the asteroids. It's about 1,000... Uh, uh, no, it's not the biggest, sorry. It's one of the biggest. It's about 500 kilometres across. Okay. So complementary to these are the iron meteorites. And they're made, it says they're made... Uh, like steel uh, is made. And they've got this very strange pattern, which is because of all the nickel that's dissolved in them. And this is one of the ways I, I can tell, or, or you would be able to tell as well, if you saw a meteorite, found a meteorite, and it was an iron-nickel meteorite, a metal meteorite, and you found this pattern on it when you polished it smooth and, and etched it in acid, and it's got this pattern. That's formed because it's co, co cooled really slowly. Now, a lot of metal that people find in the highways and byways of the country are, is from furnaces. It's slag. And I have no idea who is distributing this slag all over the country, but it's everywhere. Partly it's been used as ballast in ships, and then they come and they take on a cargo, and so they have to take the ballast out. Uh, and so what happens is the slag that's come from up there, you know, ship sails all the way down here, offload it down here. And the people who live down here, you know, they don't know that there's a smelter up there, and they find this and think, it's unusual. It's not like the rocks that we have around here. And they find, think it's a meteorite, but never mind. Right, so... What we can learn from these are timescales, all right? If you can see those two um, uh, numbers in red and green at the top, all right, that says 4567.2 plus or minus 0.6 million years, all right? So when you hear an astronomer or Brian Cox lightly toss aside the, the age of the sun or the solar system or the Earth as being, oh, about 5 billion years, you need a light bulb to click on inside you and say, no, actually it's not. It's 4567.2 plus or minus 0.6. Or if you want to be, you know, a bit more casual about it, 4567 million. All right? And that's a, that's a nice, easy number to remember. 4567 million. That is the age of those um, CAIs, those, those fluffy things with the made of calcium and aluminium, all right? So we can, we can take them, we can fertile them out of meteorites, and we can date them absolutely, absolutely. None of this, none of this, oh, about. It's absolutely. And we can do the same with our little round chondrules with the iron and magnesium. Date them absolutely, all right? And, right, okay, there's a difference. That other one's 4564.7. It's like this, so there's a gap of just a few hundred million years and what's a few hundred million years between friends? Three million years, you know. But it's enough to know that the, the processes that had gone on in the early solar system were such that, first of all, this stuff formed, and a bit later, this stuff formed. But how have we got them mixed? How are they in these things? And then you've got the formation of this pink blob here, which may or may not be the formation of... Um, a protoplanet, and then we've got the formation of the Earth and the formation of the Moon. So we can date all these things. And you've got this big time scale, and we can find out all these things that were going on. But in, in amongst all this stuff, we've got grains that are even older than four, five, six, seven million years. And these are grains, they're not made of magnesium or iron. They're made of carbon, and some of them are made of silicon carbon. And they're 
are exotic. They're diamonds and rubies and, and emeralds and sandpaper. All right. <laughs> the, most, the most abundant one is silicon carbide, which is what you get on emery paper. And the, the great thing about these is that they've got really, really odd isotopic compositions. Now, I know you're all familiar with the idea of radioactive isotopes, so uranium decays into lead. It changes because of its radioactivity. It gives off a particle. But practically every element has isotopes, and a lot of them are stable. It's not caused by decay. And what's happening is they've been produced by different processes. So earlier on, I said the sun was burning hydrogen to helium. And then when all the hydrogen's gone, it's helium, it becomes a red giant. And it'll expand and it'll engulf the Earth and we'll all die. So, but there are other um, uh, uh, bigger stars which go on to burn other things. They burn the helium to carbon. And then there's something called a carbon-nitrogen-oxygen, CNO cycle, which produces, so the carbon burns to this, and then it produces that, and then it produces that. And so you get most of the carbon that we have in the solar system has a mass of 12 units. A small amount has a mass of 13 units. And we know the number of 12s to number of 13s in, in practically everything on the Earth. But there are things that have come from other stars that have a different number of 13s relative to 12. Or for nitrogen, a different number of 15s relative to 14. And by looking at other stars, we can work out where they have come from. So this silicon carbide, not only has it got a really unusual uh, carbon and silicon isotopic composition, it's got xenon trapped in it, which is a noble gas, uh, and it's got nine isotopes. And has it got one, two, four, five isotopes? It's got more than that. It's got lots of isotopes. Anyway, it's very complicated. But some of those isotopes, that all those different isotopes are formed by different processes in different types of stars. So the silicon carbide, and this is one, that grain, it's a, uh, that um, scale bar is about a micron across, and it's, it's got all these etched pits in it because of the, the, um, uh, the life it's led. Partly in the interstellar medium, it's blown off possibly a red giant star. It's cycled through the interstellar medium. Maybe it's been in another star, but these things are indestructible, like on emery paper. And somehow it's got in to the protoplanetary disk that made our solar system. And it's got into a meteorite. And in the lab, somebody has taken that meteorite and they've dissolved it up in acid and they've filtered what they've got and they've got this tiny grain. <coughs> And that grain has come from a different star. It's been through several stars. And it's just amazing to think of that. And we can look at this, this. And we can look then at the other types of grains that we have in these meteorites. And there are about 40 different populations of silicon carbide, of, um, well, uh, it's cheating actually to say rubies, emeralds, and sapphires, because they're all the same mineral. They're all aluminium oxide. But you see them all in there. So about 40 different stars have pushed material, swept material, into where we formed. So when people say, we are stardust, we are, we are stardust, but we are about 41 different sorts of stardust. So there's lots and lots of it. And the other thing, though, is the diamonds. Now, these are tiny diamonds, three nanometers across, okay? So to get your brain around what three nanometers is, think of a foot ruler. All right, all right. Think of a 30-centimeter ruler. <laughs> We've got to be metric. And think of a centimeter. And think of that centimeter, and it's divided into 10 millimeters. All right? Now, I want you to think of a millimeter. All right? So have you all got a millimeter fixed in your head? Now, mentally divide that into a million equal bits. All right? That's a nanometer. And these diamonds are about three nanometers across. And uh, a, a, a valued colleague once said, if a bacterium had an engagement ring, it would have an interstellar diamond in it. Okay? <laughs> so these are tiny, tiny, tiny diamonds, and they've got unusual xenon in them. Very strange. And for every, for every million of these atoms of diamonds, of uh, the atoms of carbon, there's one atom of xenon. So there's only very few places in the world that can study them, and Cambridge is not one of them. Ha! All right? In the UK, it can be studied 
in Manchester or, of course, at the Open University, all right, where the only places, the OU and Manchester, oh, and um, Glasgow, OU, Manchester, Glasgow, where the only three places in the country that have the, the equipment, the apparatus to measure these really, really sensitive things. And these have been probably produced in the outflow of a supernova. So we're looking then at maybe the thing that produced the shock wave. Okay. Now, unfortunately, all right, I can't talk about this because of too much time, all right? Unfortunately, I've just looked at the clock and I was told I was talking for uh, 40 minutes, all right? I've already talked for 45 and I haven't got off topic one, all right? And we've got another five topics to go, all right? So shall I, I can either send out for pizza or I shall accelerate. I think I'd better accelerate, all right? Meteorites from comets, all right? We had... Comet, uh, the Rosetta mission, it was fantastic, you know, really, really great success. It was marvellous. And we've learned so much about comets from it. But we haven't held in our hands a chunk of a comet unless there are some meteorites that come from comets. And actually, it, we used to think that there were meteorites that came from comets, but actually the stuff that we've learned from 67P is like, uh, probably not, actually. And the stuff that we're learning about Ceres, the biggest of the asteroids, is... Um, nope, actually, probably not. Uh, we probably do not have any chunks of comet on the Earth, which is disappointing, but, you know, hope on, hope ever. We'll find some eventually. But what we do know is that these comets have brought bits and pieces of water and organic molecules, molecules with lots of carbon in them, to the Earth. That was one of the reasons for the Rosetta mission. And so the idea is that if they brought these building blocks of life to the Earth, they could have brought them to Mars. They could have taken them to, to the satellites of Jupiter and Saturn and all other places. So there's lots of places uh, in the solar system where, where life might have formed. Now... How many of you believe that the Apollo astronauts went to the moon? Oh, how many of you think it was a hoax? Oh, good, I'm glad, I'm glad that the intelligentsia is still alive and well in Cambridge. Right, so yes, of course the astronauts went to the moon. Uh, if they hadn't gone to the moon, then it's just the most, most expensive hoax ever performed. So we know about, about lunar samples. We know that we have samples of the moon. We know what they're like in terms of their chemistry, their texture, the minerals that they've got in them. Um, but we also have meteorites from the moon. And that shouldn't come as a surprise, because when you look at the moon, and you can see how cratered it is, you know, huge, huge craters peppering the whole of the surface of the moon. And it shouldn't come as a surprise to think that, well, hang on, an asteroid's come down, whammed into the moon, loads of stuff has shattered off. There's no atmosphere to, to stop it being accelerated off the surface of the moon. And the moon has hardly any gravitational pull. So where's all that material going to go? Well, all over the place. But some of it falls to Earth. And so we have got about uh, 100 meteorites from the moon in the world's collections. Now, that might sound a lot, but actually we've got about 50,000 meteorites altogether. So 100 of them are from the, from the moon. Um, so that's not very many, but it's a really precious resource because when you look at the moon, all right, and you can only see one side of it, all the Apollo astronauts, they went to a very small place. They, they've covered, we've got material from about 5% of the surface of the moon. And these meteorites, we can tell, they're, they're similar enough to the moon to know that, for us to be certain they came from the moon, but they're different enough to be able to tell us more about the origin of the moon. And one of the reasons that uh, one, of, one of the reasons, though, that people want to send missions back to the moon, and there are lots of missions being planned by the Europeans in uh, uh, conjunction with the uh, Russians, the Chinese—they're about to do it any day now. You know, literally, um, will be going back. Uh, they've already had a couple of missions to the moon. They'll have another one. And the Americans—well, we don't know what Donald Trump's going to go uh, do. Some people have thought that it'd be really great if he went to the moon, but, you know, I couldn't possibly comment on that. Um, but I'm sure he'd want to go there and build a wall. But anyway, so if you, went to, if you went back to the moon and you looked at the surface of the moon, what you would find on the surface of the moon, as well as lunar rocks, are rocks from the Earth. 
because we've got craters and things from the Earth can actually transfer to the Moon. And there's a thought that because the oldest rocks on the Earth, we don't have them anymore because they've all been melted and bombarded away. That early bombardment of the proto-Earth was probably throwing stuff onto the Moon, which would be brilliant. Go to the Moon, find a bit of Earth. Great. Not so good to justify to your funding agencies, but really, really interesting. So we learn about the moon. We've also got 100 rocks from Mars, and we know these come from Mars. Now, we can't be so certain that they're from Mars because no astronaut has gone, from, gone to Mars, not even the Martian one in the film, has gone to Mars and brought a rock back. But we can make a deduction. And the, the deductions that led up to this were, were a real sort of detective, forensic detective story in the, the early 1980s, which was, which was brilliant. There's these rocks, a bunch of these rocks, they are not old. They're the same age. Most of, the, most of them are the same age as the Jurassic era rocks on Earth, which is about 180 million years. All right? So on Earth, that's when the dinosaurs were most active. All right, and these rocks came from a volcano, but they're not from the Earth because they haven't got the Earth signature in them. They've got these little, and, and this rock here, all right, is one of the biggest on them, and it's got some of it is uh, this colour, and some of it is uh, that colour. Part of the difference in colour is because that well, may, most of the difference in colour is because they've got different crystal sizes. And this is a rock that was found by the Americans, and they called this lithology A, so layer A. And this one is lithology B. And with stunning imagination, these bits, some of which are in A and some of which are in B, are called lithology C. All right? Now, the thing about lithology C is it's glass. Now, glass is made when you shock something. All right? So you take a rock and you shock it. And when you shock it, you instantly melt it, and then it quenches, and it, it, it's cooled so fast, it gets no crystal structure in it. But in that instant that it's um, uh, molten, it sucks in all the gas that's around it. And if you get some of that glass you, and melt it, then that gas will come out, out again, and you can measure the composition of the gas. And so this is what people did, all right? So this is what, uh, so from the bottom, okay, we've got xenon. Krypton, neon, argon-36, argon-40, nitrogen, all right, and I'll come back to carbon dioxide in a minute. Now, this is a graph of the Martian atmosphere on one side and the gas from the glass in this rock on the other side. And it's a one-to-one -one line. So what that is actually saying is that the gas, the gas in the glass, good job I haven't had too many sherries, the gas in the glass has the same composition as, the, as Mars's atmosphere in the same proportions of those gases. Uh, and look, argon-36 and... Here. I've got to stay by the microphone because they're recording this. So the 40-36 ratio is characteristic of Mars. It's got a value that about, there's about 3,040 argons for every um, one uh, 36 argon. So 40, 40 to 36 is 3,000 to 1. On Earth, it's 300 to 1. So this is not terrestrial atmosphere. All right, so those up to nitrogen, they were all measured by... Um, Scientists in America, carbon dioxide. Oh, my pride, my joy. Carbon dioxide, this was measured by me and my colleagues when um, I was doing my PhD here at the University of Cambridge, just about 500 metres up the road uh, on the Downing site. And you can see that carbon dioxide is actually the most abundant of these, and uh, we're still dining out on this. But, you know, it, sh it shows that this is Mars's atmosphere in this rock. And we don't know exactly where on Mars it came from, but we can make a good guess. And it really, really helps us try to understand some of the things that go on on Mars. And one of the things that goes on on Mars is water, 
on Mars and um, the production of different salts on Mars. And then this picture up here of possibly a microfossil, which some Martian, which some Martian, some American scientists, <laughs> some American scientists published. Um, and it's like, no, I mean, it's just not, it's it just, just I, I was in a radio program called Hunting the Martians only last week. You know, podcast it, get the podcast off the BBC. Um, and you can hear, hear me talking about this. But what this did is it really propelled the, the, the search for life on Mars and made people look at it much more differently. Right, okay, oh good, summary, right. Oh, I didn't talk about galactic evolution and I skipped the molecular cloud evolution, sorry. You'll have to invite me back again. Stellar evolution, interstellar grains. So we're looking at not just the evolution of our star when we're looking at these grains, but these are the pre-solar grains. We're looking at different generations of stars. This is telling you the neighborhood that the Earth was in when it was, when it was sorry, the neighborhood that the sun was in when it was forming in that molecular cloud. These are the neighbors it had. This was what was going on. So we've got what was going on in the protoplanetary disk. I talked about those calcium aluminium rich inclusions and those little iron magnesium chondrules. And from that, we can start to get the timetable of what was happening as the planet started to form. When you look at these ones that look like basalts and the ones that look like uh, iron meteorites, you're learning about planetary processes. You're learning about how planets really form the processes that they go through. We can't get at our core, apart from geophysicists, and they are almost as suspect as astronomers when it comes to inferring things, okay? You can only trust the planetary scientists. So for these things, you, we get that. We found about the moon, and we found about Martian processes. All right, I think that's my last. Oh, and the origin of life, maybe. All right, so you get all this from this tiny, or two, because you need an eye one as well, or, or four, four, because you need a lunar one and a Martian one. All right, so from four bits, whoops, of random rock and metal that have fallen on the Earth, from the asteroid belt, from the moon and from Mars, you can start to put together a history of the galaxy. And it's like, it's brilliant. It was really great. Because when a new meteorite comes into the lab and somebody's collected it from the desert or they've seen it fall, and you, you, know, you look at it and you think, oh, this looks as if it might be interesting. And you break it open. Because at heart, you're really a geologist and you need a hammer. All right. You carefully break it open. And you look inside, and you're looking at the surface of something that nobody else has ever seen. And it's been in existence for how long? Four, five, six, seven, point two plus or minus 0.6 million years. And you're the first person to look at that, the first person to see what's inside. And if that doesn't make getting out of bed and going to work in the morning worthwhile, I don't know what is. Thank you very much. Minutes Five minutes of questions, and then is there somebody else in here after us? There is someone else. Oh, right. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Five minutes of questions, and then I'll go outside, and if anybody else wants to ask me any questions, that's fine. Gentleman in the blue and white. Yes, you. Yeah, uh, so you Um, well, we haven't got any meteorites from Venus because, as far as we know, we've got a really, really thick atmosphere. So for something to go into Venus, it's got to have a, a go in with a really high velocity to get through the thick atmosphere, punch a hole, and then enough momentum for those bits to get out through Venus's thick atmosphere again, and then to go outwards to the Earth, rather inwards to the Sun. So it's very unlikely that we've got anything from Venus. It's more likely that we've got stuff from Mercury. It's very, very unlikely that we've got anything from beyond the asteroid belt in terms of stuff from Europa or Enceladus or any of those moons, because anything that comes off of them will go straight into Jupiter or Saturn. So we've got things that come in from the asteroid belt, and of course we've got comets that come in from the Kuiper belt. We do have meteorites that we don't really know which parent asteroid they've come from, and that's great, because then you can speculate, oh, a possible meteorite from Mercury. Uh, yeah, but, yeah, that's, that's why we need to keep collecting more meteorites. 
Any other questions? Yeah. Oh, that. So the question is, what's the maximum number of stars that a, a that a meteorite could have gone through? All right. Um, well, the meteorite itself won't have gone through any. It's only come come through our own star. But the bits in it, I don't know. How long's a piece of string? I mean, the one, the bits of the grains that we've seen, we know that they have got. Uh, um, so the silicon carbides, some of them have got titanium nitride inside, which can't have come from the same star as the silicon carbide. So the titanium nitride must have formed, got blown into another star and got encased, you know, and these sorts, sorts of things. So we don't know what the maximum number is. It's, it's a statistical thing that it's probably not likely to be more than two or three, but, but we don't really know. And, and we're still finding new grains, and the number of stars that have contributed to the bit of the solar nebula where we were it goes up every year. I'm afraid this is going to have to be the last question, and then catch me outside, okay? And just an extension on that point, with the saying the elements come from different stars, do we have any idea, could that be that they could have come from any point in the universe, or do we think it's probably localised? Right. So the question is, you know, do the, the elements, if they're formed in stars, are, are they local, i.e. our galaxy? It is likely that they are local to our galaxy, all right, because the distances are so vast and the time scales. So for dust grain to travel from, the, you know, the Andromeda ga galaxy to, to us is, is, you know, just vast and immense. And, and so it's more likely to have got caught up in something else. So we reckon that all the stuff that we have is local, not just really to our own galaxy, but to our own little <laughs> bit of the galaxy. Okay, so I'm really sorry, I talked far too long. Um, so I'll go outside and catch me if you want. Oh, and are there any OU students here? If there's any OU students, past, past or present, come and say hello.